listening to Snyder & Associates podcast series, the civil engineering, planning, and design firm focused on thinking beyond engineering to improve the quality of life within the communities we serve. The host of this episode is Nicole Church. Hi, my name is Nicole Church. I'm an environmental scientist with Snyder & Associates, and today I'm going to be talking about stream mitigation, fundamentals of 404 permitting, and mitigation requirements. Snyder & Associates is a multidisciplinary civil engineering firm. Our repeat business focuses on government clients, and we serve several municipalities ranging from 100,000 to 150,000 people. But we also have a large footprint within the private sector. We've been providing professional services for over 40 years, and I've had the pleasure of working with agencies all across the states where we have offices. The Clean Water Act from 1972 celebrated 50 years in October. This act regulates the discharge of pollutants into navigable waters, outlines water quality standards, and promotes the no net loss of wetlands into waters of the United States. A quote from the Clean Water Act, to restore and maintain the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters. A permit is required if waters of the U.S. will be polluted or destroyed, and we call that filled. Today, I'm going to be focusing on Section 404 and Clean Water Act mitigation requirements. But before we get into that, we have to understand what is a wetland. A wetland is comprised of hydrophytic vegetation, hydric soils, and hydrology. Types of wetlands. In Iowa, our wetlands are classified by being emergent, scrub shrub, or forested. Emergent is comprised of herbaceous vegetation. Scrub shrub wetlands are comprised of shrubs in the name, but they can also have a herbaceous vegetation surrounding them. And then forested wetlands are comprised of areas that are dominated by 50% or more canopy cover with trees that are 15 feet or taller. Types of streams. There are ephemeral, intermittent, and perennial streams. Ephemerals flow only during and after rain events. Basically, they receive their rain either from tile or through runoff, and their water table is far below the stream bed. So they rely on that precipitation. Intermittent, they flow during normal conditions, so during the wet season, but they don't have to flow year-round, and they are connected to groundwater. And then precipitation and runoff just provides that supplemental flow. And then our perennial streams have continuous flow in the stream beds during most years, basically every year, and the water table is located above the stream bed. So their source of flow is groundwater, precipitation, and runoff. Jurisdictional waters. So now that we've talked about natural resources that are covered under permitting with Section 404 of the Clean Water Act, we're going to talk about what is jurisdictional. Jurisdictional waters are under regulation of the Clean Water Act, which is permitted by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and enforced by the U.S. EPA. And again, the Clean Water Act just prohibits discharge of pollutants from point sources into quote-unquote navigable waters, which are referred to in the Clean Water Act as waters of the United States. So the definition of waters of the United States, therefore, really sets the boundaries for the Corps and EPA's authority, their jurisdiction. In 2015, under the Obama administration, the Clean Water Rule was implemented, and the federal courts ruled that this definition of waters of the United States was too expansive. And then in 2020, under the Trump administration, the Navigable Waters Protection Rule came into play, and this new regulation completely removed ephemeral streams from being jurisdictional. So currently, under current guidance in 2022, ephemeral streams are not jurisdictional. Moving forward onto non-jurisdictional waters, we've got a broad list again, basically just anything that 
is not considered a wetland by definition or does not have a defined bed and bank that could be determined to be a stream is likely not jurisdictional if it does not have direct connectivity to a jurisdictional feature. So we understand what natural resources are protected under the Clean Water Act, and we know which resources the Corps and EPA have jurisdiction over through the Clean Water Act. Now we're going to move forward with regulations that require permits. So the Clean Water Act talked about it already. We have Section 404, which the Corps requires a permit for discharge of dredged or fill material into waters of the United States. And along with that Section 404 comes the state certification for water quality, which is under Section 401. In Iowa, the Iowa DNR process the 401 certification and submit that to the Corps for the permit. Additionally, we have the Rivers and Harbors Act of 1899, which could require a Section 10 permit for activities that could affect navigable waters of the United States. In Iowa, that is the Mississippi River, Iowa River, Des Moines River, and the Missouri River. So I've mostly talked about 404 Clean Water Act, and that requires permitting from the Corps for those impacts. In Iowa, we primarily work with the Rock Island District. They cover the majority of the state. However, we also work with Omaha District, and I've never worked with the Kansas City District on a permit in Iowa. Usually the core in Rock Island or Omaha District will take jurisdiction, but technically their jurisdictional boundary comes into Southern Iowa. Project scheduling, it is very important for consultants, landowners, and municipalities that are involved, you know, whoever the applicant for the permit will be, to understand that it is required for wetland delineations to be completed within the entire project area. We cannot complete wetland delineations in an area that we think wetlands might be. For example, along a floodplain with an included project area would be a farm field. And we can't focus solely within the floodplain. We would have to look at everything. So the floodplain and the farm field to document connectivity because there could be farm wetlands in that field and they may have connectivity to that floodplain and then drainage features as well. So they may not be jurisdictional, but we want to identify where ditches are and any low depressional features. And I already mentioned this, but floodplains as well. We should be looking at the area along creeks. Just because we're in a floodplain doesn't mean it's going to be a wetland. And just because we're in a farm field doesn't mean that you're going to find wetlands either. Looking at the entire project area is very important. So we can tell the core, here's what we identified, and here's our baseline conditions moving forward with permitting. Wetland delineations can only be completed during the growing season which is typically from April through October, and wetland delineations are only good for a period of five years. So if project timeline would take longer than that, the wetland delineation might have to be completed again with an addendum attached to the original wetland delineation report. What would trigger the need for a 404 permit? We work on these day in and day out. Any sort of construction activity that would cross a stream or a wetland that could include roads, bridges, trails, development potentially, residential, commercial, and then the construction of any dams, dikes, weirs, or impoundment structure, that would trigger a permit. Replacing utilities or maintenance, that might trigger a permit. Stream improvements or channelizing a stream, bank stabilization, which would be placement of riprap along the channel, and then dredging if there is fill placement within that jurisdictional feature what body of water and culvert replacement as well. So these are just examples of typical activities that we see every day that require permits. 
Section 404 permitting does not always require mitigation. That's very important to understand. When we talk permitting, that doesn't mean that mitigation will be required. A permit may be required for a project and it might have mitigation, it might not. What would trigger mitigation requirements are tenth of an acre of wetland impact or 0.03 acres of stream. Permits are different and they're quantified based on impacts as well, but for a nationwide permit, it has to be less than a half acre of impact. Once you're over that half acre threshold, it bumps up to an individual permit, which takes a lot longer and there's a lot of supplemental documentation required for that. And then streams for permitting, it used to be 300 linear feet, and that is still typical for most nationwides, but there are a couple nationwides and regional permits now that have a larger footprint for stream ranging from 500 to 1500 linear feet. So we've talked about natural resources and what may or may not be jurisdictional, as well as permitting. And along with permitting, proposed development, roadway, it doesn't matter what it is, the Corps and the DNR want to know how is your project avoiding wetlands? Can the impacts to those wetlands be avoided or minimized? If they can be avoided, that's the route that they want you to take. If they can be minimized, the impacts to those jurisdictional features could be less in any way, and they want to talk to you about it. And they also want to talk about options that you have considered and why they were dismissed. And then if those impacts cannot be avoided or minimized, that's when mitigation could be triggered. And that could be either through permitting responsible or through the purchase of mitigation credits, which we will talk about in just a little bit. So the Iowa Stream Mitigation Method is used to calculate impacts for permits. It's also used to develop mitigation banks. So it's got an impact calculator and then it's got an in-stream benefit calculator. This is used pretty widely throughout our state now, and it's been really helpful in providing consistency across the core for stream impacts, as well as establishing mitigation banks. On the impact side of things, we talked about that 0.03 acre threshold for streams. That is new, as in that was established in spring of 2022. That used to be 300 linear feet prior to that, and the core headquarters in D.C. just decided, you know what, some districts were using the 300 foot rule and some weren't. Some had their own guidelines on what they would use for mitigation. We're just going to make it a standard 0.03 acres threshold for streams across the board. So now, rather than just saying linear feet of stream, you have to calculate the length of the channel as well as the width that you are impacting. And then in that credit calculator, I should mention, it also takes into account the type of channel it is. So stream mitigation, when it is calculated through the calculator, it calculates it in credits. So intermittent streams have a lower ratio compared to perennial streams because perennial streams are larger systems. They might have a higher impact as well as the impact activity. Are you installing and replacing a culvert or expanding a culvert? Or is it something where it's going to be a complete loss of channel for you filling in the channel or channelizing it, straightening the stream? So each impact activity listed in the calculator has a certain ratio, and that is how credits are determined. Oh, and length. Length is also considered. What is compensatory mitigation? We've talked about mitigation already, and it is the compensation for loss of that jurisdictional resource. Your project has to impact 0.11 acres of wetland. Your obligation through your 404 permit for no net loss is to offset the loss of the impacted wetland either through the purchase of mitigation bank credit, which is option number one. If mitigation bank credits are not available in your service area, then your project can move forward with permitting responsible mitigation. 
I'd like to talk about permitting responsible mitigation first, even though it's the second option that the 2008 mitigation rule designates as preferred, there may not be credits available within a service area, so PRM would be required. And also before the mitigation bank calculator was developed and we had stream mitigation banks, this is how we completed projects. Sugar Creek in West Des Moines is a permitting responsible mitigation project, and we were impacting a meander along the stream because it was eroded and needed to be stabilized for a new bridge crossing. There weren't mitigation banks that offered stream credit, so we moved forward with permitting responsible mitigation, which was completed along Jordan Creek at Brookview Middle School in Waukee. And what we did was we worked with the Corps and determined that we needed to re-meander the stream a certain length. This channel was straightened and banks were very eroded, definitely incised, and it was down cutting. So stabilizing the channel was a success. It required monitoring and it required maintenance. And the city of West Des Moines had to work out a deal with the city of Waukee. Permitting responsible can be very expensive, especially if property acquisition is required and they can also fail. And that is one of the reasons why the 2008 mitigation rule prefers the purchase of mitigation bank credit if available rather than PRM. Elements of PRM through stream mitigation, you've got planning and design, construction, annual monitoring and maintenance. With maintenance, you have specific requirements such as less than 5% invasive species cover throughout the vegetation along the riparian buffer. In addition, if tree plantings were part of your mitigation plan, then they have a high percentage rate for survival. And if they die, you have to replace them and plant new trees. And again, eventually mother nature will take over and it has to be a natural system. And if your mitigation site fails, then you either have to find a new mitigation site for PRM or you have to buy a mitigation bank credit if available. So that additional risk component is there. The first option is to purchase credits from a stream mitigation bank within your service area. This is an easy time-saving way to satisfy your mitigation requirements for your permit. Basically, you write a check and walk away. There's no construction. There's no mitigation plan. There's no performance standards that require maintenance and monitoring. To develop a mitigation bank, on the other hand, is a lot easier for the agencies because mitigation banks are larger and they improve a large area of natural resources rather than the pocket permitting responsible mitigation plans that would be completed throughout our entire state. So it reduces the amount of mitigation plans coming into the agencies for review. They can focus on larger water quality improvement projects that benefit watersheds and service areas. And it's an easy way to satisfy mitigation for the applicant. To develop a stream mitigation bank, you have to go through, it's about a 12 to 18 month approval process through what is called the IRT, which is the Interagency Review Team, which consists of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the U.S. EPA, Iowa DNR, Fish and Wildlife Service, and NRCS is also a member. Through that approval process, you have to submit several types of documentation, which includes a prospectus, a mitigation bank instrument, and that includes conservation easement, as well as moving forward with construction and as-built and monitoring. For the bank sponsors, there are no guarantees when they will sell credits. You know, this isn't a program that is compensated for within the first couple of years. Mitigation banks typically have a range of seven to 10 years, 
and should be considered a long-term investment, but they are very beneficial if you have a natural resource that needs to be improved. For this example, our neighbor stream mitigation bank, approximately 3,000 linear feet of stream was re-meandered along its natural alignment and re-meandered to approximately 5,000 linear feet. We also were able to create wetlands along the riparian buffer, which helped with flood storage capacity and water quality improvements for tile outlets along those ag fields. So it's definitely an added bonus. Benefits of mitigation banking, obviously the landowner, they want their resource improved, but they also want to earn a profit and that's through the sale of credits and the watershed wins too. I mean, it's just kind of a win-win all around. I know we're focusing on streams, but I wanted to throw in wetland mitigation banking benefits because they're also important and they are a resource that is protected under the Clean Water Act. Stream mitigation banking benefits, dam removal improves water quality, restores fish passage, but not all stream mitigation banks remove dams. So stabilizing streams, reconnecting floodplains, adding floodplain benches to help with that reconnection of the floodplain and daylighting tile outlets to help with water quality within the riparian buffer, re-meandering straight channels and establishing a riparian buffer along areas that don't have a buffer today. So an example would be just farm field, converting that to a riparian buffer to filter nutrients before that runoff hits the channel. And then we'd already talked about the daylighting the tiles, but basically exposing those tile outlets within the riparian buffer and allowing the nutrients to flow through the buffer and then hit the channel rather than outletting directly into the streams. One of my first mitigation bank projects that I worked on was Blackhawk Mitigation Bank. So this one's near and dear to my heart. Our neighbor stream mitigation bank is in Bremer County, so just north of Blackhawk County. And I kind of already talked about this one a little bit, but it restored meanders along a new channel alignment for a straightened stream. The Des Moines River Mitigation Bank in Fort Dodge, this mitigation bank was established by removing two dams along the Des Moines River. The largest one was the hydroelectric dam, and it also included the removal of the little dam, which was a low head dam. We also restored riparian buffer along the Des Moines River, and we also restored riparian buffer along the little dam at Sunkiss Meadows Park in Fort Dodge, which they love because it's full of wildflowers and it's a lot more interesting to play. They actually have a disc golf park. It's a lot interesting to play disc golf in that sort of setting rather than just having a mode manicured lawn surrounding everything. So it makes it a little more interesting. Our Byler Stream Mitigation Bank is in Johnson County, and that also remandered a straightened channel. This is one of the smaller mitigation banks that we have, but definitely a huge benefit to the watershed. And our PAPS Wetland and Stream Mitigation Bank was constructed in spring 2022. It's in Hardin County, and that one had wetland and stream improvements, had stabilization of stream banks, we installed a few riffles for grade control, and they also function as low water crossings. And then we established floodplain benches along the channel to reconnect it to its floodplain. And those are stream mitigation banks that we've worked on. That concludes my presentation. And I hope that you guys learned something about 404 permitting and mitigation requirements. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out and email me or give us a call at Snyder 515-964-2020 and let us know if we can help with permitting for your project or if you have any questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Snyder & Associates podcast series, a civil engineering planning and design firm focused on thinking beyond engineering to improve the quality of life within the communities we 
producer. Find content related to this episode on snyder-associates.com.